Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This podcast is brought to you by GrownBuy. Join farmers from across the U.S. who are selling direct on the first cooperatively owned sales app, GrownBuy. You can easily manage CSAs of any scale, organize your spring plant sales, move that freezer meat, or even sell wholesale on GrownBuy. Farm shops are free to build with lots of inventory options. You can accept credit cards and offline payments, and their pick lists and pack sheets do the job. Customers will get automated notifications on orders, refunds, and pickups. There is no startup fees, no monthly or yearly subscriptions, no additional charge for tech support. The only cost is a small co-op service charge for online processing. However, as a listener of the Thriving Farmer podcast, you get 50% off your first three months of co-op service charges on GrownBuy. Email their very friendly farmer support team at grow at farmgenerations.coop to get this offer. Check it out at grownby.com or download the app on the Google Play or Apple App Stores. Grown by the farmer-owned marketplace. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today, my guest is Jill Reagan from Whispering Willows Farm in Central Arkansas. Her family's farm mission is to create an environment where people come together, foster sustainable practices, and build a resilient local food system. Along with her husband, Nathan, Jill teaches others how to plan and steward their own farms through their online courses, social media, and Jill's recently released book, The Tiny But Mighty Farm. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be able to chat with you today. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about how did you get um, into farming? Yeah. So do not come from a long line of farmers whatsoever, but in high school, I actually worked on a cattle farm and I went to school for ag business and mm. through my ag business, I had to take a uh, plant, you know, classes, plant science classes. And I had to do all these different presentations on vegetable farmers, which is not at all what I was accustomed to. Okay. And I realized like, oh, people are actually making career out of this. Like mm -hmm. where I'm from, row crop farming, but you know, you didn't really hear a lot of like vegetable farmers. Although now that I'm kind of in the scene, right. I know that there yeah. are a lot of vegetable farmers, but growing up, it was just massive combines, you know, we're doing soy and rice and things like that. And so having to do all these presentations and having to learn that for my degree, I thought, wow, there's really something to this. And I got really invested in just our local food system mm -hmm. and really just my own food for my own family. And so that was kind of my gateway in realizing, I think this might actually be what I want to pursue my career as um, and kind of leave behind the whole cattle side of things that I was, you know, accustomed and brought up in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So at that point, uh, when was the, you got, had your first farm property? Man. So I'm like really, really bad with dates, but I okay. would say, I mean, probably 10 years ago is when we got like our first, you know, piece of land. It was an acre mm -hmm. um, nine, 10 years ago. And we had a little bitty backyard garden, some, you know, raised beds. I killed mm -hmm. my garden at that point, um, which I would totally, you know, teach against now, yeah. but really just trying to like dive my dive head first and just figure out what is this and can I actually do this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what was like that iteration there? What were the first crops that you started growing and uh, what was your experience? 
Yeah. So I grew green beans, tomatoes. At that point I was growing everything. Cause I really didn't know. <laughs> I didn't come from a food scene growing up, uh, you know, just kind of your standard Southern home, meat and potatoes. Like that's what I was raised on. So I don't have really any vivid memories of like vegetables as a kid. There wasn't anything that I just loved eating in that category. Mm. It was just like, all right, I actually hate all of this. So let me just try a whole bunch of stuff and see if I like any of it. And that was a whole process, right? Of having to teach myself how to eat healthy foods and mm-hmm. be connected in that way when there was a massive disconnect for years, just from childhood and into my own adulthood. And so, yeah, we did lots of green beans, cucumbers, peppers, tomatoes. Um, I had, you know, I grew a watermelon that rotted on my counter and was like, all yeah. right, I really got to figure this out. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so then what, how did that develop? I mean, did you do any, uh, where were your outlets for the product that you were growing to, or was it more just for home consumption? Yeah. So at that point I was primarily growing for my family, but we were really invested in our CrossFit gym. And so mm-hmm. if you know anything about CrossFit, you know, community and food, mm-hmm. like that's mm-hmm. what those people are gathered around. And so they were really just supportive of us. And so I would harvest all of our extras and I'd take to our gym and it was kind of this honor system. And mm-hmm. so I would you know, take all the produce up there. I would leave a jar that they would leave money for. And that was really what kind of allowed me to get my feet wet and figure out, okay, now this isn't really just something I think I might would like to do. Now I'm actually like offsetting my cost of doing this. I've got Mm -hmm. a way to sell it. And so then I became even more interested in like, okay, I got to figure out how I can actually do this as a career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what was the next step after that? Well, unfortunately, I was still working a lot of nine to five jobs, right? Realizing Mm -hmm. that it's one thing to say you want to farm, but then to figure out the logistics of actually farming is massive. So Mm -hmm. I continued to work those nine to five jobs and sell extras. Literally all my spare time was just spent cultivating the garden, figuring out outlets, doing local markets. Um, It's so funny, like kind of full circle moment that I'm a guest on your podcast, because when I was working my nine to five job, I would listen to this podcast every single I've listened to all your episodes at least two or three times and would figure out what can I apply and what can Mm -hmm. I actually Mm -hmm. do. And I got really encouraged by the stories that I heard and just Mm -hmm. the relatability of like, okay, maybe, maybe I need to take a leap of faith. Maybe I Mm -hmm. can do this, but it's going to require action out of me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then what was that action and kind of where did that take you? Yeah. So fast forward about five years ago or four years ago, after I had my daughter, I decided to quit my job and that I was going to farm full time. And, you know, I told my husband, I just really don't feel like I'm being called back to the workplace. This is really what I want to do. And he was just like, you know, if you can make this work and bring in revenue, um, Mm -hmm. we knew at that time we definitely couldn't support my income and his income, but he did kind of give his blessing, if you will, for me to come home. Mm -hmm. And so literally with the baby strapped on my back, I (laughs) went to town. And at that point I had picked up some farm to table restaurants that were uh, buying for me. Still really early on, right? Like not really growing at scale at all. Still not even really implementing those market garden practices. I'm just like your backyard gardener trying to figure it out. And thankfully, we prioritize community so well that our local community members believed in me enough to buy from me. And so at that point, we were supplying still our CrossFit gym. And then I picked up two farm to table restaurants Mm -hmm. that I was 
not guaranteeing anything. There was no contract in place. It uh-huh. was just like, hey, whatever I have extra this week, will you buy it? They said yeah. yes. I started growing microgreens for a local farm store. And I was really just doing anything possible to make ends meet while I was trying to just really teach myself how to grow, you know, in a market garden style to really Uh max out production for our farm. Absolutely. So then, all right, so farm the table restaurants, what did you find with those outlets where your top selling crops and kind of what was the, the journey with that? Yeah, so I really had to do a lot of shifting, right? I grew up learning to garden from my papa and my papa only grew heirlooms. And like, I just thought if it wasn't an heirloom, it had to be like wrong. And so mm-hmm. I was growing. Yeah. The first restaurant I sold to, I had 70 different tomato, uh, heirloom tomato varieties on our farm, which was ridiculous, right? Because they all grew differently. They all required something. I was battling a lot of, you know, pest and disease issues And so I was growing all these rare specialty things and I would just hear like, I just need a tomato that I can put on a burger, right? Or Uh I just need Uh lettuce that's going to grow throughout the summer. And so I was thinking, man, have I, I've really missed the boat here in a way, right? Because I was growing all these uh, vast varieties only to find out that that's really not what the people wanted for who Uh I was selling to. They did high production. And so I had to really just completely shift through mentorship the entire way I viewed farming um, to meet the goals that I was trying to reach. And so, you know, at that point, I was growing all the things to find that they just wanted those tomatoes, those lettuces, those peppers, those things that were just I could guarantee them. And now, you know, all we grow on our farm is hybrids Yeah, (laughs) and primarily are selling tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers. We do a lot of specialty greens. That's really like what we specialize in for the microbrewery that we're growing now. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, you know, lettuce, spinach, and then the root crops for that. And so we've definitely shifted through the years to be more production uh, minded. And man, it has paid off so well for us. We just don't have any of the pester disease. We're able to trellis and yield more. Mm-hmm. So for us, we've done a massive shift on our farm in regards to what we're selling now versus to what we started with. Yeah. And your setup, your pretty small setup too. Like you've got raised beds in the greenhouse. Um, cause you also do a lot of education as well. Yes. Yeah, so we are on an acre. We're on 4.3 okay. acres, but less yeah. than an acre is for food and flour. We also grow flowers uh, for a locally sourced grocery store. Okay. And so, yeah, we have really poor rocky terrain. So growing in ground is not an option for us, which okay. is really unfortunate. We are putting up another high tunnel right now mm-hmm. and we are bringing in a uh, soil to be able to build up beds that way. It's just more efficient to manage than a raised bed and a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to put those systems in place to where we can just kind of maximize our space uh, the most efficiently. But now mm-hmm. we do you know, supply to a locally sourced grocery store and a microbrewery in town. But a lot of our focus is teaching people, you know, to grow food on a small scale. And you don't need a lot of space if you're doing it really efficiently and you're, you know, choosing those varieties that really matter. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, you know, you've had to bring in a lot of soil. You've had to do these raised beds with that soil. Like how have you sourced it? Have you just been able to find a really good compost source? Um, Cause that's one of the things we've struggled with lately is, one of our compost soys ha- source had an 8.6 pH and the other one had like 2000 parts per million of uh, aluminum and five parts per million is toxic. So obviously we're, we're still trying to make sure we're getting the right products on our farm. So how have you navigated that? 
Yeah, it's actually been really difficult. So this year we became a certified naturally grown farm, which we have Mm -hmm. been practicing, um, you know, organically and certified naturally for several years now, but went ahead and moved forward with that uh, certification. And so we had a great place a few hours from us that we would go and buy super sacks at a time. And this is what Mm -hmm. we would use for all of our seed starting to top dress beds. And um, in 2020, they shut down, which was really Mm -hmm. unfortunate. And we have had a super, super hard time. So I reached out to, you know, um, certified naturally grown and asked them, can you help me find a source for compost? And unfortunately we are much like you, we have pretty horrible options here. So I was able to get a dump truck load of what they consider the best option in my area. And I was devastated. I mean, I spent thousands of dollars on soil. And what I am left with now is spending every single day uh, removing literally so much plastic that it's insane. So that's what we're doing. And it was the best option that we had. And so I'm like, I can't grow food in this. Like just the environmental stance on that. We're very eco-conscious on our farm. And that's what we're dealing with is even the best option is just literally filtered with so much plastic that you have to really ask yourself like, gosh, what is a good option here? Yeah. And so we are still really struggling with that right now. I mean, we've already paid for it. It's on our farm. We're just making the beds and trying to Mm -hmm. remove as much by hand as we can, but it's definitely, um, really discouraging to say the least. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. And, and for you, you might have, and because you don't have a lot of land too, it's not like you can make a lot of your own compost and you're such a small farm. You don't have the equipment. So it's, uh, yes, it's very challenging. And there just needs to be a lot more of high quality compost facilities, um, in the U S and I know, um, yeah, producing as LA Coleman says, producing good compost is an art. Absolutely. Yeah. And our compost didn't get approved because we don't have, yeah, we have no equipment on our farm. We don't have a foiler, a side-by-side attractor, anything. And so we weren't, it's not being rotated to reach the levels that it needed Mm -hmm. to, to be used food crops. So outsourcing was the only option that we had and still just, yeah, there just are not very many uh, wonderful options. Yeah. One thing we've done, which I don't know if it would be a solution is we bring a lot of leaves from our local communities. And so um, we'll just rent a, a bob or a um, little mini excavator every once in a while to turn it. So um, not that you will get to the level, but what you can do is then call that leaf mold as an ad as your uh, as the product. So it's not a compost. You're adding a leaf mold. That's how my mm-hmm. certifier. When we the first time we got certified, he was like, because we got certified organic, and I was like, well, technically I'm not tricking my temperature on this. And he's like, call it leaf mold. He said it's a that's approved product. So, um, anyway, yeah, not sure if that's helpful, but, uh, that was one way we were able to get more organic matter onto the farm. So, yeah, that's a great tip. Thank you. Um, so with your, then your small production, you don't have these bigger tools, kind of what tools do you use for production to like, you know, work the soil a little bit and, uh, the reseed and that sort of thing. Yeah. So our broad forks definitely like our most used tool. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a broad fork kind of specifically, my friend and mentor made it kind of with me and females in mind. (laughs) So it's really nice where I can use it. It also, you know, we're using it to prep our beds, to flip our beds, but then we're also using it to level everything out. And then Mm -hmm. the teeth are spaced. So we have the teeth used to know our planting depth our you know, our planting spacing and row. And so that has really 
that and like a handheld hori hori is the only two tools we are using on our farm because we just don't need mm. any other tools. Um, you know, we have all of our seed starting supplies and like, that's another thing, but as far mm-hmm. as just maintaining beds and getting crops in and out, the broad fork is like what we're using on a daily basis. Gotcha. So you're doing a lot of things like cucumbers, tomatoes, and then greens from what it looks like. Correct. And then flowers. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so then I would assume most of that is transplanted then. Yes. We transplant everything except our root crops. Uh, we okay. do transplant our beets, but all of our radishes and carrots will direct seed. And then we do, we're definitely shifting, you know, seasonally. We yeah. grow probably the most of our crops in the fall and winter. Um, mm-hmm. I enjoy mm-hmm. growing more. We just have less issues here in our climate. I'm in, mm-hmm. you know, central Arkansas. So we do a ton of, you know, brassicas and everything like that. And again, we are starting everything and transplanting it out. There's very few things that we direct seed just because we're constantly succession planting on our farm. And that's just how we're able to kind of get and stay ahead of the season is having things started and transplanted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so then with that, that season, because obviously our, that's you're hot down there. So that would make sense to kind of like leave the summer to do a little bit less there. Um, when do like you plant your tomatoes and then do you even have like a break in the middle of the summer or you still go through the whole summer? We go through the entire summer. We are literally growing food 365. And so okay. we'll do a fall round. We'll pull out our tomatoes and then we'll do um, some determinate varieties. Uh, like the Grand Marshall tomato in particular Mm -hmm. is what we're going to do throughout the fall. And we'll wait until the frost kind of takes that out. Uh, But for us, we're trying to also grow for our family, right? And so I'm trying to stock our pantries for the entire year while also providing uh, to the microbrewery that we're selling for. And so for us, until this new tunnel is put up, Mm -hmm. we're having to share one tunnel with what's growing for us and for the restaurant. So when we have the new one, it'll just be for restaurant production. And then our, you know, tunnel will be for our family. And there might be a little bit of where, okay, we're going to rest these beds. We're just going to take a break Uh right now. The last few years we've been in year round production. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So then are you a solo farmer or do you have any team members that help you with this? Yeah. So we have a really hard time with employees, Um, not because we don't love team members, but we Uh live literally in the middle of nowhere. So it takes about an hour to get to our house from any direction. And so we have had great seasonal employees. However, just two hours, you know, to and from work has been really, really hard. Mm. And recently had a great employee who worked for us and then he moved about an hour and a half away. So right now it is me and my husband and primarily it has always just been uh, me Mm. and my husband. I did it full time. Um, back no, you know, last November, he came home to help me with it. And it's just been the two of us. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we have really tried hard to figure that out. I've recently paired up with a university where certain students have to intern at a farm to, um, mm. for, for major. Yep. So you go in and you apply and it's an intern apprenticeship situation. And so I have filled out all the paperwork, required. And I'm hoping we will get some fall and winter uh, interns mm-hmm. and that way the school's paying for it. So that yeah. they don't really mind the drive. So I think that, you know, we've had another farm that's pretty uh, rural who has mm-hmm. done this and this is the only way they were able to get uh, help on their farm. So I'm hopeful <laughs> yeah. that we will be able to do it. But yeah, right now it's just me and my husband. And I mean, it's a lot, you know, it's, oh, it's yeah. definitely a lot maintaining all the things that we're, we have a ton of animals as well. And so, yeah, it's definitely just a lot and can be kind of tricky. 
Mm. Now the animals more for just you personally. Yes. So we will raise them out for our family. And then some of our, um, you know, employees, that was something we also did for them was we would raise out and process this for them. It was one of those incentives. You can you yeah. know, have food farm as well. And so we still have, you know, hogs that need to go to butcher right now for our past employees that we've yeah. still been raising out. Um, so yeah, that's primarily my husband handles. I mean, I milk all the dairy goats, but other than that, he's really the one that handles most of our animals on the farm. And I'm more of the food, um, as far as vegetables and flowers and things like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very cool. Hey, thriving farmers listeners. It's Lindsay from grown by. I have exciting news for farmers who sell direct grown by is proud to be the first and only platform where you can accept snap benefits online. 42 million Americans depend on SNAP benefits to feed their families, spending $114 billion annually. With SNAP Online, you don't need clunky machines or weird workarounds to receive those payments. Customers shop your Grown By store and check out using their EBT card just like a credit card, and no special equipment is required. Grown By supports everything you'd want to sell, from complex CSA programs to weekly markets and delivery. I know that many of you care deeply about food security. There are so many projects that farmers do on their own to bring food to the communities who need it most. Offering SNAP Online is another way to make sure that your farm products are accessible to everyone. Thanks to a grant through USDA and our partner MarketLink, accepting SNAP Online at your farm is entirely free. Really. To get started, simply email us at snap, S-N-A-P, at farmgenerations.coop, or visit us on the web at grownby.app. Check out today's show notes for more information. And also, just so you know, it's okay if you've never accepted SNAP before on your farm. We will get you started. We hope that you will join me and the members of the Farm Generations Cooperative Makers of Grownby to expand your farm sales with SNAP online. So talk a little bit about, you know, you've changed a little bit as the farm has grown. What would you say that like, if you could go back and start the farm over again, what things would you change? Yeah, so we're kind of in a really unique situation. We bought our farm two years ago from our friends. And so our farm was already a farm set up by our friends who had um, a different vision, right? They were not growing to sell. They were more homesteaders. Um, They're you know, it was for content creation. Mm-hmm. And so we've had to come in and do a lot of things differently and put in a lot of different systems because our approach is so different. And so for us, you know, it wasn't like we could change things. We're now changing things that have already been done. And so for us, kind of those, the biggest things is just like irrigation and having those efficient systems set up and making use of the space more efficiently. Um, I feel like, you know, now even our raised bed area could probably be done more efficiently if it was an in-ground garden. Mm-hmm, and so those mm-hmm. are things that we're considering. Do we knock all the raised beds down? Yeah. <laughs> um, there, you know what I mean? And so for us, you know, we're very thankful that we came into it and we're able to just start farming it. However, because our approaches were so different, it has, you know, proved to be a bit challenging. Just mm. same with the raised beds in the greenhouses not really efficient for how we farm. So it's like, all right, Mm -hmm. in the tunnel, we're not going to do raised beds. We're going to level out the pad. We're going to bring in, you know, soil. And so that's Mm -hmm. a lot of just kind of where we're at is how do we maximize the space for our needs the most efficiently, which looks like, unfortunately, undoing some of the things that have already been done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is that difference of, oh, we actually are trying to produce as much food as possible in this tunnel. And these four foot wide pathways just don't make sense. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. We actually can't even get like a wheelbarrow or anything into our raised bed garden. So like for weeding or harvesting or anything, we can't get a lawnmower. Like, and so that is like, we have to take all the perimeter fence down, right? We have to move raised beds and do. And so those are things that when you're just gardening for fun and as a hobby, that's not really a big deal. But when you're doing it and like, you know, time is yeah. money and substance matter and you're thinking about labor costs from point A to point B, uh-huh. those things really add up and make a massive, you know, difference. And so that's what we're trying to work on and figuring out. Mm-hmm. Now, you wrote a book recently, The Small, The Tiny But Mighty Farm. Um, talk to us a little bit about the reasons behind that. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, even when we were looking for land, we were looking, we have to have at least 10 acres, right? And we talked to a lot of people and everyone wants land and they want 10, 20, 30, 40 acres. But the problem is, especially since, you know, the last few years and all the world events, land is ridiculously expensive. And so having the money to be able to buy the land, but then where we are, land's not even accessible. I mean, it is just not accessible. And for me, I really want to encourage people where they are. And I find that in our season of trying to find land, I've spent a lot of time being super discouraged because we don't have the money to buy the land. And Uh even if we did have money, the land's not available. And so I thought, you know, Elliot Coleman as you know, Ben Hartman, these are men who have been like super influential. And it's like, do we really need all of this land to be effective in our approaches and what we're doing? And I realized that now we have 4.3 acres and I'm not even utilizing that for food production. I mean, I'm less than an acre here. I mean, maybe mm-hmm, even an mm-hmm. acre if we're looking at yeah. it, you know? And so for me, it was just like, I've got to encourage people that you do not need a lot of land. You just mm-hmm. need really good systems. And so the whole book was to highlight the small scale farmer and talk about the value of like, Hey, even if you don't have five, 10, 15, 30 acres, it's still (laughs) worth picking up that torch and saying, Hey, on my quarter of an acre, my half acre, or maybe my acre, I can make a really large impact. And this is how you go about doing it. So that was really my vision for the book was to encourage more small scale growers to not be limited by what they have, but really learn how to use what they have more efficiently. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I think that is one of the things that probably holds people back the most is they just want that they think they need all this land. Um, because that is what farming you've been told for decades is, you know, get bigger, get out. You need all these hundreds and hundreds of acres. In reality, some of the most profitable farmers I know are on an acre or less um, because right. they've been forced to use every square inch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So talk it's to us a little. It's huge. You know, everyone's well, even just not having equipment, you know, a lot of people are like, you don't have a tractor, you don't have a four-wheeler. I'm like, but why? I mean, I'm not telling, I mean, sure. It might be nice to move stuff that way. I'm not having to wheelbarrow it by hand, but other than that, it's like, what is this thousands of dollars worth of machinery? Actually, how long would it take me to make my money back on that tractor? And that's really what you have to think about it when you're on a small scale for us. It's like, the numbers are always at play and yeah, uh-huh. I can buy it. Does that validate me as a farmer to say I own a tractor? Not really. <laughs> and so that's well, kind of how I look at it. Yeah. I still don't have a pickup truck, but uh, <laughs> much to my father-in-law's chagrin. Um, but yeah. Um, so what would you say then with your farm and being very small scale, do you run your numbers of like, what's the most profitable crop you have? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we're figuring out. And that's how we actually got into flower production. Mm. I grew flowers. It's just like, 
kind of companions and like pollinators, right? Like just kind of creating that habitat. Um, but it was nothing I ever considered for profit. And then when I had a business ask me to grow for them and they told me the numbers, I thought, oh my gosh, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I can grow one Dahlia. I'm the only in my area Dahlia producer. And so I can grow literally one Dahlia stem and sell it for what I would sell a pound of tomatoes wholesale. So we're a wholesale mm-hmm. multi-farm. And when I realized that is that it requires less out of me and I yield more, that makes a lot of sense. And so obviously I have a massive passion for growing food and I'll always grow food, Uh but that's how we really started incorporating flowers is because it required less. We could grow it um, kind of towards the end of summer into fall when it's just the weather's a bit easier on our bodies and we can make more money at it. And so as far as our food, I'm growing those specialty items, right? Specialty greens, specialty root crops, and I'm able to charge a premium for that. And that is just one of those things that with the restaurant we're growing for, it's like, hey, these are specialty things you can't get anywhere else. It is going to come at a price. And they have agreed to that. And so that's really how we do it is figuring out how can we really do this really efficiently, but choose those varieties that we know are going to work well for us. And we can promise X amount each week. And that's really how we've gone about making it profitable for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, one of the interesting things with your book is you actually have a spiral bound version, which I thought was interesting. Yeah which is nice. Cause it's, if you're trying to read something, laying it open anyway, just a small side note. I love spiral bound books. <laughs> Same. I'm actually working on a planner right now, which is all yeah. of my system. And that was one of the important things is that like, we can lay it flat and take it out into the garden and people can like write in it. Cause for us, that makes, I mean, that's a huge difference when you're actually utilizing the product. So then with the book, obviously, I'm assuming that's opened up a wider audience for you to, um, you know, help folks who are starting to get, uh, starting with farming. Um, what would you say kind of like are the big questions that that kind of opened up for the most common questions that people have after you wrote the book? Yeah, one of the biggest questions was like, how tiny is tiny, right? People wanted mm-hmm. to really know, like, okay, if I'm just in like a suburban backyard, can I actually still use these principles? And that was actually really fun because we are currently only growing our food under protected culture. Mm. And a lot of people feel discouraged by that, but that was not always how we did it. But it's like, once you figured that out, then it's like, well, why would you grow outside? Right? Like I can well, yeah. just control everything. And so teaching people that like, even if you have a small backyard, you can still put a tunnel in there Mm -hmm. grow a lot of food but all the systems that i'm using in my high tunnel you can also still implement outside if you're not growing in a high tunnel and so that was you know a lot of the questions i got were just again how how tiny is tiny and these systems you're talking about can they actually be applied to me if i don't have a high tunnel if i you know only have a quarter of an acre and so we do a farmer highlight in the back of the book and i highlight farmers in my area that are growing on a quarter acre a half an acre and then a full-time farmer at like five acres Mm, and it shows that like hey they are still using these same principles uh-huh, in the, uh-huh. you know, very small backyard, still all the same trellising techniques, growing all the same varieties, and they are still y- yielding a very large amount of food because of succession growing. And so that's been really cool to kind of empower people in that of like, uh-huh. again, it's like not being limited but really just utilizing what you have. And so that's been really cool to see people prune their tomatoes, you know, to uh-huh, a double uh-huh. Yeah. And, People like, what? You mean you can prune suckers off of a cucumber and yield more? And it's like these things that we think are probably common knowledge because it's Correct. the world we live in. But yeah. to a 
backyard gardener, a beginner gardener, or homesteader, which is a lot of what my audience is, these are like newfound things to them that they had no idea. Like you decapitated your tomato. You're crazy. And I'm like, no, actually I just doubled my fruit yield. Like exactly. <laughs> yes. Did. And so it really just kind of empowers them. Like, all right, even if I'm in a small space, I can prune and trellis differently to yield more. And then that's been really encouraging to see people do that, that otherwise would have, you know, never tried some yeah. of these principles. Yeah. Yeah. I think just even the concept of testing your garden soil is something that so many people just don't understand. And I mean, right. it's so important um, if you don't, because then you just don't know what's why stuff's not growing. So um, yeah, I mean, those simple aspects are going to make them so much more productive and, and successful. Um, so with the um, with the growing then, your year round, um, you talked about selling at some, um, to some farm to table restaurants. And you also mentioned a brewery. Talk us through a little bit about the, the relationship there. Yeah. So it was really cool. It was, uh, we met them through community members. And so uh -huh. it actually just opened up in March. So uh -huh. very new when we had established this relationship during the building process. And, you know, we do really just emphasize community. We have farm pillars um, and at the top of our pillar is community and mm -hmm, a few, mm -hmm. you know, a few down is grow food. And yeah. We actually have these in our dining room and people ask all the time, like you're a farmer, shouldn't grow food be at the top of what you do. But mm -hmm. I truly, if you don't have community, what's the point in growing food? Mm -hmm. And so because we've stewarded community so well in our community, because we've showed up for other farmers, we've been so involved, even when we weren't selling, um, it just like they came to us. It was really just kind of this great thing where they were like, hey, we've heard so much about you. We've seen your involvement in the community. What can we do to make this partnership work? And essentially, like whatever you can grow, we're willing to take whatever price you have, we're willing to do. Mm -hmm. And it was because they saw us faithfully live out that relationship with other community members. And so it's been this beautiful thing. We supplied them twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, it's been a great little brewery. We were able to kind of help sponsor that. And so we've got a, you know, a keg that's got the tiny but mighty on it. And so it's yeah. a really cool way just for people to get to know us as farmers while we're also supporting something really cool in the community. Um, and so that's how that relationship actually formed was just other community members telling them about uh -huh. their relationships with us. And that's how that got started. That is so cool. So then does the, obviously you're now growing for them, which means you're looking at kind of working with the chef on the menu and I'm assuming things like that. Yes. Which has been interesting. Um, if you, aren't a chef that's used to working with farmers. It is yeah. different. I'm a spreadsheet junkie. So I have, you know, the week's harvest in a spreadsheet that's shared with them and what is available. We obviously uh -huh. have a minimum that they have to reach for me to be able to deliver. And so we've been trying to like work through those kinks of like, you know, me and the chef knowing how to best utilize that spreadsheet. And so there has definitely been, you know, some learning curves when it comes to that. And also just, I think, you know, when a lot of chefs are used to just ordering a truckload, they go online and they figure out what they want, you know, and it's, it's easy. And so this, you know, buying from a local farmer, it's a bit more inconvenience, but you have to think of the value that you're offering. You're offering local organic food to your community members. And so I am in direct, you know, contact with the chef. We've certainly been working through how to make that system more efficient uh -huh, for everyone. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I'd say that we're both in a stage of just like being willing to keep growing in that area, but it's been fun, right? We've been learning 
together yeah. and figuring out that not all chefs are the same. And mm-hmm. so that's like, as farmers, we have to kind of pivot, figure out, well, how do we make this work, you know, per chef basis and not just like one shoe fits all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, unfortunately they don't train that in culinary school. They train you how to do it, but they don't train you this aspect of, well, okay, so here's a local farm and here's how you probably should work with them. And that's why a seasonal menu board is just so key or being able to quickly come up with a special. Um, it's harder. It is. I mean, we worked with some fabulous chefs back in New York. We work with a few here in Ohio, but back in New York, we were in Saratoga Springs area and just the, the, the chefs up there and they could just, oh yeah, I can take that. Cause I'm going to, and, and just listening, watching their brain uh, spiral into what exactly they were going to do with it all was just incre- really fun to work with them. Yeah. And it's definitely a new concept here. I feel like it's picking up, but we're in mm-hmm. rural Arkansas, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you have to go at least three or four hours, uh, like Northwest to get that real like farm to table vibe. Mm-hmm. And so like here we're in central Arkansas it's still a new concept of farm to table they're still trying to figure out you know how to utilize the food that I'm growing and how to make it different and get people excited about it so yeah it is definitely an art (laughs) for sure yeah 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 um yeah you sound very rural and I'm the further south you go and the more rural you get it kind of I feel like steps back in time so you know again we were 10 years ago when we were upstate 12 years ago I think that is just now coming down to where you you all are down there. Yeah. Um, so talk to us a little bit. You said your husband came back back to the farm last year, which is awesome to see that. Um, what would you say kind of like when you were taking that step, was there any, you know, trepidation about that? Or are you pretty confident that you knew the farm and, and everything you're doing could make that work? Yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely a scary, scary time. The farm has always been my dream and he's been mm-hmm. such a great supporter in that. What it came down to is I couldn't grow our business with him working for someone else. Right. And mm-hmm. he really worked from home. And so that was even more challenging is that he was home, but not available. And it was just like, one, are you fulfilled in what you're doing? Cause that's for me, if there's no fulfillment, there's no purpose. And so I'm just not one of those that like continues on the rat race. Like I have really got to be filled up by what I'm doing to motivate me to want to move forward. And so that was a lot of the conversations we had is like, is this job fulfilling you? Do you feel like you are really uh-huh. up each day living out your purpose? And the answer was no. And that was affecting our family and our business. And then also just like, I'm at a place where I can't grow without your support and partnership in this. And so when we decided that he would come home, it was scary. And as a numbers person, I didn't fully crunch the numbers because Mm -hmm. I didn't want that to hinder me from saying no, because I knew if we took the leap of faith and we did it, I would make the numbers work out. And so it was all really, really wild. So he, you know, left his job. I decided that we should probably add another high tunnel to grow more and we should pick back up uh, some customers. So mm-hmm. I reached out to my contact that I work with now was talking about a high tunnel. We had a partnership with within a month. I was driving down to Texas and bending pipe for my tunnel and bringing it back mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. Like immediately had a door open for our high tunnel. And then literally like a few weeks later, the microbrewery reached out to us. And so we immediately had an income that was covering what his income was within all of just like a few months of him mm-hmm. leaving his job. And while it was scary for me, I really do believe no risk, no reward. And I'm a risk taker all day long. And so I knew that we would figure it out and that we had all the means necessary. If that was 
adding a high tunnel and growing more food, or if that was prioritizing more education, that mm-hmm. we could make up his salary and we would be happier in the long run because of it. So as scary as it was, obviously we would do it, you know, all yeah. over again because it has been so life-giving, just having a common vision and being able to actively work towards that every day together um, has been really special. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what would you say to the person who is, you know, thinking about starting their first farm or worrying about taking that first step? Yeah, I mean, one, you just have to jump, right? Like that, the scariest part is just starting. But something I like to tell everyone, and even now, you know, like we've got four acres, I would downsize. So my mm. biggest piece is like, start small. But then don't be afraid to stay small. There is something really beautiful about honing in a system on a scale that you can manage and also have freedom of life. What happens when we find these full-time farmers growing in a large scale? They've lost quality time with their family. They're isolated. They fight anxiety and depression. Why is that? Because their entire life is on this hamster wheel trying to make this move forward because they're growing at a scale to where that's what's required of them. And so for me, if you start small and you stay small and you still have quality of life, you still have quality of friendship, of family. For Mm -hmm. me, that's really important because I would give up the farm all day long if that's what my family needed. But because we're growing at a scale we can manage, I can have both of those things. And so I would say just start, but start small and stay small. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you know, with that starting too big, then the weeds take over, then you can't sell the product, and then you get discouraged, and then you spend all the time fighting with your um your significant other or your kids not getting the attention they need, and uh then you are out of farming very quickly. Right. Um, and it's like, what's the quality there? Right. Yeah, like yeah. Th- there is no quality of life in that. And for me, I grow food because I do feel like that's what I'm called to do, it's my purpose. But there has to be a balance and I'm able to balance that because I am at a scale I can manage. And I've seen so many farmers go at a scale that they can't and they sacrifice stuff that they just can't get back. And that's something that I'm not willing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jill, I appreciate you coming on the podcast so much today, sharing your story and excited that we could actually, you know, be a little bit a part of that and um, you enjoyed the episodes, which is awesome. So um, yeah, congrats on what you're doing. And uh, again, thanks for your growing food for your community. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.